Welcome to the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. In this episode, the team behind the Wild Edges project talk about the landscape of Garden's Edge in the Peak District's eastern moors. I am Bob Johnson from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. I'm collaborating with Rachel Kidd, an artist, on a Festival of the Mind project called Wild Edges. The project explores the intersections between landscape art and landscape archaeology, our kind of shared ground and distinct terrain. We've focused our collaboration around one place, Gardam's Edge, in the Peak District's eastern moors, and the one question. What contributions can artists and archaeologists make towards imagining and anticipating futures for Britain's upland landscapes? Our collaboration includes musician and all-round technology maestro Graham McAlerney and uh, filmmaker Jess James. In this podcast, you'll hear music composed by Graham McAlerney and Paul Mills, and you'll hear spoken contributions from me, Rachel Kidd, Niall Grimes, Felicity Stout and Flory Johnson. Together, we offer our personal portraits of Gardam's Edge. Standing on Gardam's Edge provides an expansive view across the Derwent Valley and westwards towards the Peak District's limestone plateau. The edge is a low, broken grit stone crag. The stone-covered ground below the edge drops rapidly through old oak woods to the valley. The land above, screened by pale young birch, forms a shelf that slopes gently southwards. The birch trees were not here 50 years ago. An aerial photograph taken in 1971 shows the shelf open and treeless. This may be how it was 3,000 years earlier, during the 12th to 10th centuries BC, when people began gathering surface stones and piling them into a high bank that enclosed the edge. The bank stretched for 600 metres. It marked six hectares of a broad ridge, with the crag the boundary to the west. The bank's form varied as it wove its way amongst the large earth-fast boulders that littered the ridge. Five entrances survived through the bank. There may have been more. The enclosure's interior was never cleared of stone and contains no visible roundhouses or platforms where houses might have stood. It seems unlikely that people lived within the enclosure. The bank's northern end aligns upon the Eaglestone, an isolated outcrop of sandstone that landmarks the shelf on the opposite side of the valley. Why did people enclose the edge during the Bronze Age? Was this a location from which a community could control the valley land below? Was the crag itself in some way sacred or enchanted? Might it have offered a place for different groups to gather, with the multiple entrances offering access from different directions and ways to distinguish the animals and people who entered and left the enclosure? The Bronze Age world was altogether different from our own. 
Rather than imagining landmarks like gardens as topographically convenient places from which communities could defend themselves or demonstrate power over their domain, we should think of places as active participants in the formation of kinship. Hills were known places with myths and histories and powerful entities within social life. Building the enclosure assembled new communities with the hill. It secured powerful alliances between communities and important vibrant places. Perhaps the edge and peakland beyond formed the backdrop for performances. People in their relations with one another were transformed through the gatherings and performances within the enclosure. They went out into the world beyond the enclosure, with their relations, kinship, transformed. I'm Rachel Kidd. I'm a landscape artist based in Sheffield. I moved here a couple of years ago from a place called Arden American Point on the west coast of Scotland. And found that Sheffield could provide me with my sort of city fix and my nature fix in one with the Peak District so so close by. I didn't actually know the Peak District at all before I moved here, um, but I spend a lot of my time out there running and climbing and sketching and making notes to then bring back to my studio in Sheffield. Garden's Edge is one of my favourite places in the Peak District, um, mainly because it's so visually rich. Uh, there's so many textures and forms and inscriptions of times gone by and a sense of multiple realities all living at once. I like to imagine that every time I'm there, my experience is just another layer to be laid down upon all those other layers. More recently, I've got to know Garden's Edge through the eyes of the landscape archaeologist Bob Johnson, and and this has added another dimension to the place for me. One of the things I had no idea about was the Enchanted Stone, which is sort of midway, midway along the edge. This stone is a fiberglass cast of um, an original, which is now buried beneath um, for protection. When first trying to find the place, I actually had no idea where it was and I set out on a run. And it was the most bizarre experience trying to look for this thing. And I started suspecting every rock around me. And then I guess I'd entered into this uncanny kind of world where any rock could be fake. And I started to think about how we attach so much to things like stone and rock there seems to be such a deep belief and understanding that there are some ancient bystanders to time. And having that belief just suddenly thrown up into the air made me really question landscape in general and how so much of what we assume to be wild and natural places are often man-made or manipulated to a human benefit or just simply illusions. So although something like a fibreglass cast can look identical to, to the real thing, it's just a surface. And what's something if it is just surface? Somehow, for me, it then lacks a soul and the essence of a place. I want to be able to conjure up or expose that essence. Just framing off a section of the landscape and painting it to look exactly how it is just isn't enough. That feels like the fibreglass cast. It feels like just a surface. 
and it's lacking that soul and essence of the place. So I use lots of different mediums and techniques as, um, as a way of connecting to this. And I hope that using these different approaches helps to stay truer to my initial experience. I'm Niall Grimes, climber originally from Ireland. Came to live in Sheffield probably at least 25 years ago, mostly to climb on the gritstone edges around the outside of the city. These are kind of famous places worldwide and they've got a real romance about them that really attracted me to come here. As soon as I did, I started climbing on them, uh, hooked up with other friends who would do the same thing. One of these original friends was Andy Pop, who's a bit of a, an inspiration for me. I'd heard of him as a climber before I'd ever met him. A very committed climber, very sensitive character. And he and I formed a great friendship and climbed together a lot. He loved Garden's Edge, the trees and the shelter and the nooks and the, the corners of it all, and got me into it too. There's a funny thing about climbing that's very intense, but the short intense bits are really interspersed with long, not dull, but periods where essentially nothing's happening. These are maybe when you're holding someone's rope when they're climbing and you sit in the ledge and you're paying attention to them, but mostly your mind wanders because you're not doing very much. These are beautiful moments of contemplation and you stare every now and again up at your friend, but your eyes do the thing of just looking in the distance looking at a small spot, a hedge, or a, a footpath, or a puddle. I remember one time in Garden's Edge with Andy, we were climbing on a wall that's known as Crocodile Wall. Now, I think if you look at different ways of understanding nature and the landscape, you might have an ordnance survey map. Climbers have guidebooks, and they give things names and grades, and often tell when the first person they do it was, so they get history involved in them as well as practicalities. I was trying to climb called Crocodile and he was trying to do a new route to its left. So I was beeling and beeling when you secure somebody with a rope. Crocodile is based around this little L-shaped hold about 12 feet off this grassy ledge. I climb up the L-shaped hold and you're quite far from protection and security at this point so you wouldn't feel free to fall off. I'd go up through the L-shaped hold, come back down to the ledge and then we'd just sit there and chat. And the side of the wall faces off into uh, the Peak District. Andy was a historian at the time I was doing history at Sheffield. We'd look out at the fields and you know the shape of the hills and fields and valleys? That's always been the same since a number of thousands of years ago. I remember a discussion about what would have been like this view 10,000, 20,000 years ago. I don't know much about nature and about landscape. And there's something really nice about talking about these things with somebody else who doesn't know what they're on about. It's because your imagination goes off into these distances and tries to work out from what you know what it would have been like. And I prefer that to being there with somebody who actually knows what it would have looked like. Because it's dreamy, isn't it? So you go up and try the L-shaped hold, feel that for a while, which is about the size of the tips of three fingers. So it's intensely, your view is intensely collapsed into this tiny little area of gritstone and trying to understand it. Then back down to look at three or four hundred square miles of landscape and trying to understand that. That's my strongest memory of Gardams. Andy did his new route and added his name to the history of the area. My name is Dr Felicity Stout and I'm the Tree Conservation Officer for the Peak District National Park. 
I'm sat on the uh, top of Garden's Edge, looking at sunset, and what I can hear is the wind rustling in the leaves of a lone oak tree. I've singled out this particular tree uh, to sit on and talk about briefly because it is conspicuous in its rarity up on the top of Garden's Edge. So everywhere I look on the top of the edge, I can see birch trees. Um, this is because birch trees are a pioneer species. Um, they like to go ahead of all the other species and they're particularly happy on upland areas and can deal with the exposure quite well. So uh, I was drawn to this particular oak tree because there aren't any others around up on the top of the edge. It's not a very hospitable environment for an oak tree to be growing in. And so as I sit on this oak tree, what I can feel is the, um, uh, the effort that this particular oak tree has made to uh, survive in this particular area. It's exposed um, and generally it doesn't like that. And uh, also oak trees tend to like free draining soil, whereas this isn't uh, particularly free draining. Although it's quite um, small in stature, it's doing well given its position up on the edge. As I wander down a path that's taking me down to the bottom below Garden's Edge, what I'm coming across is more of a wooded area. It's a mixed woodland and um, what stands out as I look at this area, you've still got loads of birch trees, but also quite a lot more oak trees and some other species there. We've got hazel, we've got a bit of alder and, and a range of species. And this uh, particular area just under Garden's Edge has been designated as ancient semi-natural woodland, which means that there's been some continuous wooded cover here and indicators of that cover since uh, at least 1600. The majority of them are multi-stemmed oak trees, which suggests that in the past there's been some coppicing and that this part of the edge has been worked in a variety of ways. The wooded features of Garden's Edge were worked perhaps uh, just to clear them out of the way if they were um, quarrying for stone, for millstones, or potentially also as um, coppice for making charcoal. There was a lot of lead smelting going on along edges in this area as I get down to the bottom, what I see is an entirely different form of tree management of these oaks uh, for an entirely different purpose. I've got to the bottom of one of the crags on uh, Garden's Edge, which I think must be particularly popular with climbers. Quite a few of these multi-stemmed oak trees have been coppiced again, as it were, perhaps quite inexpertly, in order to get to the crag so that climbers can do some climbing. And they're all beginning to sprout back up again. My name is Floyd Johnston. I go to Eckersall Primary School and I am seven years old. If I was drawing Garden's Edge, I'd probably draw the rock art because normally if you go on a moor, then you would see loads of trees and heather and bracken anyway. And there's not normally rock art on moors, so... Well, I think of green quite a lot and purple for the heather, when it's when it, the flowers are out, grey because all the rocks, mm, brown for the trunks of the trees, green for the grass. You might hear footsteps in the heather or bracken, 
or the reeds if someone was walking there and it was you know, like a crunchy noise. If there are sheep around, you might hear them. Um, bird songs, the wind. I like it because it's rocky because I like climbing on the rocks. They don't really have holds where you can put your feet, so I just like scrambling up them. But also, I like swinging on branches. There's another thing I like doing at Garden's Edge, which is the reeds I like putting, well, pulling the skin, um, the green stuff off and then having the foam inside, trying to make it as long as I can. I sometimes collect feathers, like I collected one from a pond, which was a duck feather. And I collect different things, leaves that are really pretty, so like they've got dots on. Um, I've collected lichen before, because my gran likes lichen. And it's nice to keep things like, well, taking things home and then keeping them. Like, if you go to the beach, you sometimes take things home, which are nice, like shells, the souvenirs of remembering about it. It's fun to be out and about on walks. There's loads of space so you can run around. You can sort of do what you like there. The writer, cartographer and artist Tim Robinson wrote, There are places where place itself proliferates. His subject was Karna on Connemara's southern shore, and specifically a group of stone-walled fields, an amoeboid clustering, as he evocatively described their cellular pattern. Across generations, the fields had acquired a mass of personal and folkloric associations. I think of Gardam's Edge as a, a place like Karna, where the past endures, altered but decipherable in the standing stones, rock art, cairns, field walls and crooked oaks. The great scarp edge enclosure offers one of many stories I could tell about Gardam's. We need places like Gardam's Edge, where we can see and experience deep time. Places where we can confront our changing relations with the environment, from kinship to capital. Some places are more suitable than others because of the richness of their stories and the variety of worlds they evoke. We're now living through a climate crisis of our own making and must take decisions about how to live in the world differently, sustainably. Under the Committee on Climate Change's stretch scenario, we need 70% more woodland in Britain or thereabouts to help us become net carbon neutral by 2050. That's 2.1 million hectares of trees, or 15 times the area of the Peak District National Park. And wilding has begun in parts of Britain as a way of countering climate change. Livestock grazing is declining. Native species like the beaver have been reintroduced. I'm at this transformation of the British landscape currently typified by open fields, moorland and mountains, affect us. Humanity has, during the last 10,000 years, changed every grain and granule in Britain's landscape. Should this past matter when we're faced with a present and future crisis? How can the past help us to anticipate and prepare for change? The past helps us to listen for different stories, as Julie Crookshanks has put it. 
say listening for is a more acute, attentive and searching process than listening to. It reaches beyond what is familiar and acknowledges that other, different perspectives lie on the margins of our experiences of the world. Prehistories can help us to defamiliarise our landscapes. They require forms of abstraction and imagination and a different attentiveness to the landscape. It's from these different ways of knowing that we can anticipate and contemplate alternative futures. Gardens is unique in this area in that it comes in and out and in and out and the trees come up around it and you're sat with your back against the really old oak tree, some twisted gnarly oak tree, and you feel its texture. So trees are what gives gardens its specialness and gives it shelter and makes it come into condition at certain times of the year when other areas don't come into condition. So it's got a real, real beautiful time of the year in late spring or early autumn when the leaves are really given a lot of protection and character to the climbs. And as I said in my introduction, I call myself a climber. So what's important is the rock and climbing on it. So nature comes up to reclaim these rocks. And part of what you do at gardens is gardening, which is taking away bits of foliage as they encroach to keep these things in condition. And I guess what you're trying to do is keep things the way they are. Keep your part of the world as it is, because that's how you know it. It's a funny thing because as you look out over nature and, and over the hills, you realise how much things have changed. So it's hard to understand what, what the desire to stop this change is just because you're a climber and this, you value this resource and this type of the resource over other resources such as tree growth. But I guess that's just the way it is. And I think a lot of climbers share that view that climbs are so special and you want them to remain but as everyone knows, trees are special too, so you want those to flourish, so that's the compromises of life, isn't it? In terms of trees now, trees in the past on Garden's Edge and trees in the future, certainly if people are wanting to use the crag, then there's, there's a threat to the trees there. But the main, the main threat to the treed environment on the edge really is lack of management certainly in the ancient semi-natural area of, of Garden's Edge which is down towards the bottom if this woodland isn't managed in any particular way then there will be certain species like birch which will dominate and take over so we'll lose the diversity the biodiversity there and one of the great things about oak trees is that they support out of all our tree species in this country oak trees support the greatest number of other native species. So they support at least 257 species of um, insects and managing our woodlands so that they are as sustainable and biodiverse as possible is the key to sustaining these in the future. Garden's Edge really feels like it's on the cusp of change. You can really see how nature is taking it back. I find the term rewilding a bit tricky as it kind of suggests we're going back to some perfect time without human presence. And this isn't possible. I think we need to think of ourselves as part of nature and part of the story and part of its future. Places like Garden's Edge really give you a sense of how, of how the whole of human history is engulfed in the folds of natural cycles. I think if we're going to think seriously about how we play a role in the future of these places... Understanding the landscape a little bit better through my collaboration with Bob, I find that we can use the research based on fact 
as a kind of launching point for the imagination. It's so easy to have a closed view of our landscape, to just see the obvious surfaces that are presented to us. For me, I really think real wilderness resides below these surfaces. I think that wilderness is maybe the bits that we can't experience, that are beyond our senses, and we can only really explore them through imagination. I hope that with my artwork and with my collaboration with Bob, we can help encourage people and inspire people to value their own experience in these places. I really believe that if people do have valued experiences, they're more likely to take a responsibility. I'd really love for us all to share these hidden personal landscapes so that we can reform bonds with these places. I think Garden's Edge is a good place to start. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash Festival of the Mind. Oh.